All right, let's turn now uh, in our Bibles to 2 Samuel 18 as we pick up with our, our narrative again where we left off. Um, I'm going to read the first 18 verses. <clears throat> and David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle uh, there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went on. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him? And why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise I would have dealt falsely against my own life, for there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab had held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, every one to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's Monument. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, as we come to this very sobering and solemn portion of your word and the unfolding of the narrative of David's relationship with his son Absalom that you have given to us, 
Uh, we pray that you would help us to approach it reverently and carefully and honestly, and that you would grant light and understanding and also heat, as it were, from your spirit to warm and to move our hearts, and that we would take to heart the very important lessons and sobering lessons that are here for us. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, without giving a lot of background, most of you, I think all of you have been here. There's not anybody new here, I, don't, I think. And uh, the event that we looked at last night was something of a turning point in this whole story. Our focus was on the thwarting of the council of Ahithophel, a council that if followed would have probably put an end to David and his kingdom uh, that very day. But David had a spy in court, Hushai, whose advice was also sought by Absalom. And as we saw, Absalom decided to take Hushai's advice instead of Ahithophel uh, to gather a much larger, to wait and to gather a much larger army. And then only after doing that, uh, then to attack with himself at the head of it. And this was a plan that gave David more time. <clears throat> gave him more time to get ready, to get prepared, and all of that was part of God's plan and was in God's providence, as we saw. Well, as soon as he could, Hushai passes on this information to David's intelligence network. Then in the latter part of chapter 17, which we did, we did not look at last time, we're told that in response to this information, David and all the people who were with him, they took a 20-mile journey to the Jordan River and crossed over to the east side of the Jordan, and they eventually go to a place called Mahanaim, and there they regroup and prepare for battle. Once Absalom has mustered his massive army, he too crosses the Jordan with all the men of Israel, and we're told that his forces were under the command of a man named Amasa, and this brings us now to where we take up here in chapter 18. Now, I want to remind, remind you that uh, this is not just the interesting account of a military conflict that's simply recorded for our entertainment or amusement. Some people enjoy reading about battles, great battles in history, the strategies and maneuvers and so on. I, I, like, I enjoy reading about such things. Even in the realm of fiction, the battles can be very interesting. When, it, uh, when all of the Lord of the Rings uh, books and the movies, when the books have been out for a long time, but when the movies came out, my, my favorite part of the movies was the battle scenes. That's... That's the part that I enjoy. My wife never really enjoyed that part, but I, uh, <laughs> I, that's why I like the. I think I like the second one best because I like the Battle of Helm's Deep. It's, and um, but anyhow, uh, but this is the Word of God that we're considering, and these things, though they're very interesting from a purely military perspective, are not recorded uh, just to entertain us. They're written to teach us, and to instruct us, and to reveal to us, and to illustrate. For us, important spiritual truths. All scripture has been given by inspiration of God, and it's all profitable for instruction, for reproof, for correction, and for teaching. And that includes this passage. They're written to teach us and instruct us. And we always have to keep in mind that David in this narrative is not just any king, as we've been pointing out. He is Jehovah's chosen king, appointed by God to rule over his covenant people. So to rebel against David as king as Absalom and his followers have done, is to rebel against God and his kingdom. And it's in this respect that David is 
a forerunner of Jesus Christ. His kingdom, as we've been underscoring, is the foundation from which will arise the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is to David the promise has been made that from his seed God will raise up one to sit upon his throne, and this is that kingdom in seed form. Therefore, in David's enemies, we have a picture of the enemies of Christ and the enemies of his people. So as we come to this section, once again, we're reminded of the folly of resisting Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Well, let's begin the exposition by considering, first of all, David's preparations for the battle. David's preparations for the battle. David is now in a position where he can choose the location of the battle. Absalom is coming out with his huge army, apparently much larger than David's army. And we see in verse 6 that David chooses the forest of Ephraim, a forest that's actually located on the the east side of the Jordan River in the land of Gilead. So as this great battle is about to be fought, the first thing David does is number and divide his army. He puts one-third under the command of Joab, a third under Abishai, Joab's brother, and a third under Ittai the Gittite, verses 1 to 2a. Then at the end of verse 2, David declares his intention to march out with them, but the troops won't have it. They plead with him not to risk himself, but to stay behind in the city. David, if you are killed in battle, everything is lost, and David wisely listens to their argument, and he agrees to stay behind, verses 3 to 4. He stands by the gate as the troops pass by, and then notice what we're told in verse 5. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. So David gives this command to his generals to deal gently with Absalom, and he does this within the hearing of all the people. Now, commentators tend to differ in their moral evaluation of David's command here at this point. Now, personally, I think there's some good elements of David's character that can be seen in this command, but they're also mingled with it some bad elements and imbalances as well. Let me make a few observations about this command. First of all, on the negative side, David's command is a bit unreasonable, if you think about it. It's true that Absalom is his son, but this is war, and Absalom is the cause of the war. We're not... We're not playing games here. Uh, These generals and their men are putting their necks on the line. Uh, They're they're facing the frightening prospect of death themselves and doing so willingly and courageously in order to preserve David's kingdom and in order to preserve David's life. Is it really reasonable uh, for David to give them a command like this before they go into battle? I can imagine such a command giving the impression to the soldiers that David isn't really concerned about us at all. He's not concerned about what we're doing. All he's concerned about is his son, this spoiled, pompous wretch who has been the cause of all of this trouble and who should have been dealt with by David long ago. I think if I had been Joab or Ittai or Abishai or one of the soldiers, there's a part of me that would have been quite irritated with this command. Come on, David, be real. Don't you think it's a little bit too late for that? Do you really want us to win this war? If so, don't send us out to fight with one hand tied behind our back, as it were. Secondly, David's command is excessively sentimental. 
In other words, David is once again allowing his affection for his son to overrule sound judgment. And he's allowing sentiment to overrule the demands of justice, I believe. We continue to see this come out throughout this chapter and into chapter 19. Later, when news comes back from the battle, David never even asks how many men were killed. At first, he never expresses appreciation for his army's victory, and that carries on into the next chapter as well. Uh, He has to be rebuked later by Joab. Uh, He never asks about that. He never expresses appreciation to them. He has one question on his mind. Is the young man Absalom safe? Not how did we win the victory. Not is Joab the captain of the host still alive, upon which so much depends. Not how many of my noble and loyal troops have fallen. Not a word of thank you to the men who had risked their lives. No, he had one question. Is the young man Absalom safe? He seems to be more concerned about that than he is about God's kingdom and the cause of righteousness and the well-being of God's people. And we've seen this tendency in David before in his dealings with Amnon and also his dealings with Absalom. Absalom really should have been dealt with long ago. Back when he murdered his brother, he killed his own brother, and David did nothing about it. He banished him for a while, then he brought him back, and then eventually he completely restored him as though nothing had ever happened. David was a very kind, tender-hearted father, and that's good. But that tenderness was sometimes corrupted by a kind of sentimental, unprincipled softness toward his children. And then there's the added factor that in this situation, Absalom is not merely David's wayward son, and David is not merely his father. Absalom has made himself an enemy of God and his kingdom, and David is God's king appointed to defend that kingdom and to uphold God's law. He's committed heinous crimes that, according to the law, were deserving of death. Now think about it. What if, what if indeed Absalom was spared by David's army? What in the world did David plan to do with him if that happened? Just let him go free? Would that be right? Would it not be the duty of the state to sentence him to death, which in the old covenant theocracy would mean the duty of David to do that? However, having said all of that, I don't want to be too hard on David. His deep concern for his son is not all bad. Thirdly, we must be fair and acknowledge that it's only natural for a loving father to hope the best for his son. Certainly, David must act in this situation as one who is king and therefore as one who must uphold the demands of justice in the kingdom, but it's very hard, if not impossible, to do that without also feeling the emotions of a father. And I would also add there's something very commendable in the fact that David's disposition throughout this whole narrative was one of readiness to forgive. It's right to have that disposition. It's God-like. It's Christ-like to have that disposition. It's wrong and it's not possible to righteously grant the promise of forgiveness where there's been no repentance, when wrongs have not been confessed, forgiveness has not been sought. It's also true, as we saw, that, that personal forgiveness of a person does not mean the demands of civil justice can then, then be ignored if a crime has been committed. However, we're never to allow bitterness to take root in our hearts under any circumstances, we are always to be ready to forgive, desiring to forgive, eager to forgive, lovingly confronting the one who has wronged us in the effort to seek reconciliation, desiring that they would come to us, that we can forgive them, and gladly granting that forgiveness. That's the disposition we should always have 
And here we see that David's heart was like that. Though Absalom has acted toward his father with gross ingratitude, un, uh, unfeeling cruelty, dishonor, and though he's even seeking to murder his father, yet David still loved him. <clears throat> and that's not wrong. That's something commendable in David. We need to appreciate the dilemma David was in. On the one hand, he dearly loved his son Absalom. Even though he was such a wicked man, he still hoped that perhaps he would repent and could be forgiven. But on the other hand, justice demanded Absalom's death, and David as king must uphold justice in his realm. So this is his dilemma. Well, we've considered David's preparations for the battle. Now let's consider, secondly, the description of the battle. First of all, we have a brief description of the battle itself. It's, it's really interesting, but the battle as a whole, it only gets three verses, verses 6 to 8. When, when you start reading through this, you, you all of, everything's building up to this battle, and I don't know about you, but when I got to this point, you know, I was kind of disappointed because it doesn't really say very much about the battle. You know, I'm, I'm, I want to hear about all the things that happened. Well, it just gets three, three verses, not a lot of detail. We're told the place of the battle, the woods or the forest of Ephraim, verse 6. The losers of the battle, verse 7, those who were with Absalom were overthrown before the servants of David, and there was a great slaughter of 20,000 men. And then we're told in verse 8 that the battle was scattered over the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And the idea seems to be that the success of David's army was partly due to a wise use of the terrain, dividing his army under three commanders, fragmented Absalom's troops caused them to spread out, keeping them from making a united attack, and the woods were just as great a weapon for David's soldiers as their swords were. Perhaps the forest allowed David's smaller force to set ambushes. Perhaps Absalom's men got entangled and bogged down in the underbrush and were unable to keep rank. We can only conjecture, but the point is Absalom's army was routed. But now, after only giving three verses to the battle itself, secondly, we have a very detailed account of the death of Absalom. His disastrous end is given 11 verses by way of contrast. Clearly, the main focus of this passage is on how Absalom met his end. That's the main thing that the Holy Spirit, through the narrator, wants to highlight. Now, if this were merely a, a piece of secular literature or it was merely a human uh, literature, the battle itself would probably be given a lot more attention. But again, you see, God is not interested merely in entertaining us here, satisfying curiosity with unnecessary details. His concern is that we get the message, the message of this event. And that message finds its focus in Absalom. The focus is on the horrible end of this arrogant, disobedient son and enemy of God's king. Let's look at it. We all know the story, but let me just point out some of the important highlights. Somehow in God's providence, Absalom finds himself before a group of David's soldiers. Perhaps he'd never planned it to happen, I'm sure. He's in the thickets and the trees of the forest. It was probably very easy to get disoriented. He, he pops out into a little clearing, perhaps, and suddenly he's face to face with a group of David's soldiers. It's what someone might call a freak accident, just a case of bad luck. Well, Absalom takes off on his mule, 
to get away. And then something else very strange happens. Another terrible, quote, accident. As he rides through the trees, his mules, his mule goes under a large terebinth tree, a kind of oak tree, apparently, and somehow his head slammed into some of the low-hanging limbs and became stuck there while the mule just kept on going. It's been suggested that his hair got caught in the limbs. Uh, the text doesn't explicitly say that, but it's possible that's what happened. But in some, some way, he got caught in the limbs of the tree by his head, perhaps either by his neck or by the hair of his head, which he so prided himself in. And when the mule took off, there he is, hanging between heaven and earth. Now try to picture this scene. There he is in terrible pain, trying to wiggle free, but he can't get loose. It's one of those, I can't believe it, moments when I... When I was studying this, it made me think of the Roadrunner cartoons. Remember the Roadrunner cartoons? It seems like every time the Roadrunner has uh, the coyote in his grasp, something happens, some kind of frustrating and humiliating predicament he finds himself in. And so here he is. Well, as Absalom's hanging there, he must have been enraged by the absurdity of it, the indignity of it all, and the bad luck. One of David's soldiers reports the situation to Joab. Joab rebukes the man for not applying the finishing touch himself. Verse 12, but the man said to Joab, he gave him his reasons that he would not do so because he had heard David's words to everyone. But Joab has no such scruples. He ignores the king's orders. He walks up, puts three spears through Absalom's heart right there on the spot, and then ten other men follow suit. They hack him up with their swords to finish him off. Now, the character of Joab is something of a riddle when you study the life of David. He's an interesting character. It's hard to say that he was a completely bad man, but there are many things commendable in Joab, but it's hard to say he was a completely good man either. Even here, it's difficult to know exactly how to evaluate what he does in this situation. The text simply reports what he did. It makes no real uh, moral evaluation of it. It seems there's both something rebellious in his action and yet something rational about it. Rebellious because he disobeyed David's orders. Rational in terms of the welfare of David's kingdom. As one has commented, David would treat cancer with candy. Joab knew it required surgery and he nominated himself as surgeon. Well, uh, in whatever way we evaluate Joab's actions, one thing is clear. In the providence of God, the whole event was God's judgment upon Absalom. It was the fulfillment of God's purpose. God purposed to destroy Absalom, and now that purpose has come to fruition. That man who so prided himself in his good looks, so prided himself in his beautiful long hair, when he cut it each year, he even weighed it to know just how heavy and full it really was. But God traps that arrogant head of his between the limbs of a tree, and he hangs there hopeless, helpless, and in a moment is all over for Absalom. The handsome body, good-looking face, which made him the poster boy of Israel, front page of People magazine, for which he was admired by all of his deceived followers, that body is thrust through with Joab's spear and slashed and mutilated by the ten men who were with him. But then attention is also drawn to the mode of his burial. 
Verse 17 tells us, They took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. All of this was, has symbolic significance. The form of burial denied Absalom the honor of being laid to rest in the royal and family tomb. Also, the burial site being on the east side of the Jordan River excluded him from the land of promise. Furthermore, it was the burial of an accursed man, identifying him with Achan, who was stoned to death and buried under a large pile of stones, and with the Canaanite king Ai, who having been hanged on a tree, was, you remember, was thrown into a pit and was also covered with a large pile of stones. In addition to that, it fulfilled really in symbol the law's demand that a rebellious son was to be taken outside the walls of the city and stoned to death. Jewish writers have said that though this punishment was not exactly actually inflicted on Absalom, the mode of his burial was fitted to show that he at least was counted as deserving of it. They also tell us that it became something of a custom after this in Israel for those who passed by this heap of stones to cast upon it a stone of their own to cover the remains of Absalom. And as they threw it to say these words, Cursed be the memory of rebellious Absalom, and cursed forever be all wicked children that rise up in rebellion against their parents. Dale Ralph Davis summarizes well, I think, this whole event. This is the end of Absalom, the darling of the media, the rising prince who could work the crowds with such finesse and flair and who with disdain and arrogance let his glands do the talking with David's wives before all Israel. This is the end of the one who would destroy God's chosen king. Well, there are three lessons I want to open up and apply from this. It's not a very pleasant narrative, but there are some important lessons we can learn from it. First of all, in the death of Absalom, we have a dreadful picture of God's punishment of all those who reject his king. Here we see where the rejection of God's king, the Lord Jesus, will bring a person. It will bring you shame, humiliation, and destruction. The focus of our passage is on Absalom's end. That's what God wants us to see. Those who resist and refuse God's king will be destroyed in the end. That's the main message. If not in this life... Absalom's temporal shame and death is but a dim picture of the much more awful and eternal shame and misery that will be the lot of all those who reject Christ in eternal hell. All of Absalom's talents, all of his good looks, all of his glory, all of his pride are gone. All of his ambitions lay in ruins. He's thrown into a pit in the forest of Ephraim like a piece of worthless garbage. Well, my dear brothers and sisters, there's another pit spoken of in the Bible, a pit that awaits those who reject Jesus Christ. It's called the bottomless pit. It's called hell. It's called the lake of fire, that dreadful place out of which the smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And that pit is for all those who follow in Absalom's footsteps by refusing to embrace Christ as their Savior and King. They'll be cast into a pit, a bottomless pit of hell from which they'll never escape. Secondly, 
We're also reminded here of the impossibility of avoiding that judgment. The impossibility of avoiding it. Have you noticed how Absalom took every precaution to keep this from happening to him? To keep from happening to him what actually happened. We saw in the earlier message how carefully crafted and well thought out his whole scheme was for taking the throne. He was very methodical. The way he gradually won the people over, the careful way in which he set things up to have himself declared king in Hebron. He was also very careful to win to his side the wisest counselor in the realm, Ahithophel. And then remember how he carefully sought counsel from Ahithophel before the battle and, and developing his military strategy. He sought counsel from Hushai also. He was very careful to cover all the bases. He comes against David with an army of overwhelming size. He's taken every precaution. But my friends, you can't outsmart God. You can't, you're not going to outfox him. According to verse 14 of chapter 17, as we read last, yes, last night, the Lord had purposed to bring disaster upon Absalom. And try as he may, there's no avoiding God's judgment. Even David sought to protect Absalom's life. But it didn't matter. The Lord had determined that Absalom would die and he did. He can surround himself with a gigantic army, but it doesn't matter. He can take off on his little mule and fly back to safely, safety. But God will stop him in his tracks. God has an unlimited number of ways he can do that at his disposal. Of all things, Absalom gets his head caught in the branches of a tree. His mule leaves him hanging there. As Ellsworth comments, those who are not tuned to God's ways might be inclined to say, what rotten luck for Absalom. But the word luck is nowhere to be found in the Bible. It was God who caused that tree to grow in that very spot. And God who steered that mule in such a way that Absalom got caught. Now, there may be someone here this weekend. It may be that everyone here at this conference is a believer, is converted, is a Christian. I don't, I don't know uh, the spiritual state of everyone here, but it may be. There's some young person or some adult, and you've tried to be very careful in your sinning. You've tried to make, take every precaution to make sure you don't get caught. Every precaution to try to protect yourself from any negative repercussions from your sin. But my friend, don't deceive yourself. Do you really think you can outfox God? You really think you can do that? You can't do it. And unless you repent, you can be assured, as the Scripture says, that your sins will find you out. They will find you out in various ways. And they will ultimately find you out on the day of judgment. Jesus said, there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. Learn from Absalom's fate the impossibility of avoiding God's punishment. You may seem to be getting away with your sin now. You may seem to be doing fine now, ignoring the claims of Christ over your life, but be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He who being often reproved hardens his heart shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy. You know, Absalom was used to having everything his way. And with acting as he pleased and getting away with it, he killed his brother Amnon and got away with it. He connived and deceitfully flattered his way into the affections of the people 
to promote his own ambitions and got away with it. He slandered his very own dad, his father, and he got away with it. He ignored God's command to honor your father and your mother, and he got away with it. He pretended to have made a vow to God and pretended he was going to Hebron to fulfill that vow, taking God's name in vain. He played upon the religious hopes of a godly father to trick his dad into giving him permission to go there while his real purpose was to have himself declared king and to begin his takeover. He did all of that, and he got away with it. He fornicated with his father's wives and got away with it. He hated and rejected David, not only as his father, but as Jehovah's king, and even set out to destroy him. And again, at least for a time, he seemed to get away with it. But he didn't really get away with it, did he? His time came, and God dealt with him. And so it will be for all or any who follow in Absalom's footsteps. But not only do we see in Absalom a dreadful picture of God's punishment of those who reject his king and the impossibility of, of any such person avoiding God's punishment. Thirdly, I want to underscore in closing out this session something else about Absalom's sad end. Namely, it was unnecessary. It was unnecessary. It's unnecessary to experience God's punishment. Absalom didn't have to walk the path he chose to walk on. He didn't have to rebel against his father. He didn't have to reject God's king. And even after he did all of these terrible crimes and sins, after he rebelled and sinned so greatly, so long as he was still alive, there was still hope. He could have repented. He could have sought his father's forgiveness. His father was so eager to grant that forgiveness. He could have sought God's forgiveness. And God would have had mercy on him. But he never did that. He was so full of himself that he ignored all the warning signs until it was too late. It was all so unnecessary. Yes, the Bible is full of many warnings about what awaits those who refuse to embrace Christ. But it's also even more full of the good news of the gospel that this threatened destruction and deserved destruction can be avoided. It tells us that Christ the King is also merciful. That He is the Savior for sinners. That He's done everything necessary for sinners who turn to Him and come to Him for mercy and forgiveness and acceptance with God. Again, I remind you of what was pointed out in the first message, David's dilemma when he came to Absalom. It's in that dilemma we have an illustration of, of the backdrop uh, that dilemma that forms the backdrop of the gospel itself. On the one hand, David dearly loved his son Absalom. Even though the young man was wicked, David loved him. He was ready to forgive him. He wanted to forgive him. He wanted him to be spared. He wanted him to be safe. He wanted him to be pardoned, restored, to enjoy all of the blessings and all of the privileges of being a son of the king. But on the other hand, justice demanded Absalom's death, and David as king must uphold justice in his realm. He must not bear the civil sword in vain, but execute wrath on him who practices evil. And how did David resolve this dilemma? Well, his tendency has been to resolve it by subjugating the demands of justice to the demands of love. Justice is ignored 
in the interest of his love for his son. It's a difficult dilemma for David. Well, remember, this is the same dilemma God faced when it came to saving sinners like you and me. But he doesn't solve it by compromising justice or by giving way to unprincipled sentiment. He solved it in a way in which God remains perfectly just and yet the justifier of those who believe on Jesus. How can God remain righteous? How can he remain holy and just and yet at the same time shower his love and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness upon you for all of your sins, though you're deserving of hell. That's all we're deserving of. How can he do that? that that's the great question of the gospel. In fact, if you've never been faced with that question, I would question if you even understand the gospel because that's the question that the gospel is really addressing. How can a just and holy God do anything other than send me to hell? How can that happen? And the answer of the gospel, the good news, is that God himself did something about that. God the Son took to himself human flesh and he entered into this world and he lived a sinless life and he suffered and he died upon the cross and there upon the cross he was enduring the wrath and the punishment that we deserve for our sins in our place as our substitute. God spared not his own son but he delivered him up for us all in order that we might be forgiven in order that he righteously might forgive us and pour out His love and His mercy and His goodness upon us and take us into His family as His own sons and daughters, royal sons and daughters of the King. Christ has accomplished the work that is necessary. He has endured what we deserve. And we know that His sacrifice was accepted and sufficient for God has raised Him from the dead, declaring that the work has been done. And the gospel goes out to men and women and young people and the children. And Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes on Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The point I'm making is that there's something to be learned about God in this whole story. In this conflict that David feels in his heart toward his wayward son. The conflict between the zeal he has, must have, to uphold God's law, to uphold righteousness. And the tender love and merciful feelings of his heart as a father for his wayward son. We have a dim picture of the very conflict within the heart of God toward all of us. And if you're not a Christian, if you're unsaved, and you're here at this conference, this is a picture of God's heart toward you. God has provided a way in which your sins are punished in a substitute in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, your sins and mine 
must either be punished in us, in you, in me. They must be punished in us in hell for all eternity, or they must be punished in Jesus Christ. There's no other way of salvation. But if you run to Jesus Christ today, if you receive the gift of Jesus Christ that is freely extended to you in the gospel from the merciful and loving heart of God the Father, just like the Father in the parable of the prodigal son. You run to Jesus Christ, and he will meet you. He longs for your return. He runs to meet you. He saw his son coming from afar off, and he ran to him. There were legs of mercy. He threw his arms around him. There were arms of mercy. He kissed him. There were kisses of mercy. He said, kill the fatted calf. My son was dead, and now he's alive. He put shoes on his feet, a robe to cover his filthiness, a ring on his finger. And he embraced him in love. And Jesus, in that parable, he said, you know why Jesus is telling that parable? He said, I want you to see that this is what God is like. This is who he is. He delights in receiving and showering his mercy and grace upon sinners who turn from their sins and run to him for mercy. Praise his holy name. And he will do that for you. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ with no plea but the cross, in the words of the hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And no one ever perished there. No one ever perished clinging to Jesus Christ at the foot of the cross. Jesus said, him who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how great your sins are, doesn't matter if you've been to the very brink of hell itself. Christ will save you if you come to him for mercy. That's a great gospel that we have to preach and to to declare to our friends and our neighbors and our family to the whole world. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you today for this opportunity to continue to consider the unfolding of these realities and truths in the pages of your holy word. Now may you grant that your word which has been declared would not fall to the ground, but that it would accomplish that for which you have sent it forth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.